Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Last week, we began looking at 2 Corinthians, and uh, I encourage you to listen to that message if you missed it. We, uh, there were several things we we addressed only in the first, uh, I don't know, two and a half chapters, maybe two chapters. And, but we talked about how Paul had apparently, after his, uh, you know, again, he wrote a letter first to, to the Corinthians uh, at some point, and then they wrote a letter, delivered a message to him, and then he wrote a letter which we know as First Corinthians, answering all these doctrinal questions. And then before the letter that we have now, known as Second Corinthians, he made a visit to Corinth, and it was a painful, difficult visit. There was some rebuking, there was some correction, there was some challenge to his apostleship, and he dealt with some sin in their midst. And um, there was really no small amount of division that was stirred up regarding the sinful man that he addresses in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to talk about that sin again. We talked about it last week. And... Uh, Whatever else was going on, by the, by the time Paul wrote this, and this is probably his fourth letter to Corinth because he refers to another letter, things had settled down. He had a difficult visit, uh, this painful visit. He wrote a, a stern letter to them, and then things had settled down, and when he, he wrote this, whether, again, he was referring specifically to the sinful man or to something else, repentance had taken place, and by this time Paul's writing this, he's urging them to forgive the man who caused this division, who caused this strife, welcome him, reconcile to him, and let's move on. This was Paul's message. But we spent most, uh, most of, at least at the end of last week, we focused on something earlier in the letter, which is the truth that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That's the part you need to hear. So I'm not going to preach that again. Get that message, download it, whatever. And uh, now, moving forward, I want to pick up in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, where it says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to another the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, sorry, but as, yes, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, uh, this word aroma and fragrance, I like that he uses these words in reference. uh, Well, he refers to our sense of smell here, talking about the presence of God and the power of God in our lives. Did you know this, that psychologists... Uh, have demonstrated, um, if not proven, they have certainly uh, demonstrated and suggested that the sense of smell of all the five senses, and I know they're saying there's more than five senses, but the five physical senses that we were raised believing we had, knowing the five that we identify, the sense of smell is most closely associated with memory. That is, when you smell something, uh, rather than hear, taste, touch, or anything else, if you, if you smell something, a certain smell is more likely to take you back to a specific moment in time. Does anybody, can anybody relate to that? Yeah, a lot of you can. For, uh, uh, 
you know, I can remember waking up uh, many mornings at basic training. Just some of the funnest, most pleasant days of my life. And uh, one of the strongest uh, aromas that I can remember from my days at Fort Benning is the, is the smell of honeysuckle. Is it still like that down there? Nope. They've killed all the honeysuckle. It's too bad. But I would get out there, uh, you know, first thing in the morning, you're getting rolled out of bed, screamed at. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with waking up early now in my life. I wasn't a naturally early riser back then, but mornings were not pleasant times at basic training. Uh, and then next, and, and the very first thing you do is haul you out on this dirt field to do uh, exercises, and I'm smelling this honeysuckle, which is a pleasant smell. Unfortunately, for years afterwards, every time I was uh, uh, exposed to that smell, I'd have a flashback to my basic training days. Just, I mean, it's just like, oh, this kind of reminds me of something. It's like, no, you're just kind of overwhelmed with this. Another thing, when I was at Canaan Land, my first ministry job down in Alabama, where there was honeysuckle, by the way, we got uh, a lot of our food from the food bank. And a lot of it was good. Uh, but a lot of the coffee we got, uh, for some reason, we just had an enormous amount of amaretto-flavored coffee. And so, and everybody drank coffee, all right? I think a lot of these guys, you know, when they got off crack, they replaced their crack addiction with a caffeine addiction. So everybody had a coffee pot or a mini coffee pot in their rooms and so the lodge was just full of the smell of coffee and it was this amaretto coffee and i got so sick of that stuff because it was the only thing they ever had and 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 to this day when i smell that i'm in the lodge at canaan land it just takes me right back there and uh now what paul is talking about first of all before i get back to that idea what paul's really probably talking about here is the idea of the triumphal procession of the roman army Uh, when they would come back to rome in victory there would be a parade and the citizens would come out and they'd throng into the streets and there would be spices burning there would be incense burning as part of this parade as part of this celebration and not only was the victorious army marching through the streets you know who else they marched through the streets they're captives the vanquished the victor and the vanquished marching in the same parade, smelling the same smells. But the aroma of these spices and this incense, while it meant one thing to the citizens of Rome and the soldiers, this smelled like victory, this smells like triumph. The prisoners, the captives, the vanquished are smelling the exact same thing. It doesn't smell like them. To them, it's the stench of death. It's the stench of captivity, right? Right? And Paul is saying that there's something, there should be something about you, something about me. Our very presence in a room should indicate or signify the presence of Christ in the room, almost like we smell like Jesus. And our very lives, if we are living, if we are allowing the power of Christ to live through us, brings an aroma, a fragrance into the presence of other people, and it's going to affect some people differently. We want that scent to be attractive, to be winsome. We want when people are around us, we want the presence of Christ to affect them in such a way that they want what we have. There's just something about you. You smell good. 
And people, and you, many of you, I know you have. We've talked about it in conversations, and it sounds corny, but somebody, you meet a stranger, or maybe you meet somebody you haven't seen in 20 years, and they tell you what? There's something different about you, and you haven't said a word about Jesus Christ. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have ever had somebody? Yeah, a lot of you. What's different about you? Your whole countenance changes. Your outlook, your vocabulary, all of these, these uh, detectable in some, in some subtle ways observable differences but acting the very same way living the very same way exuding the same presence guess what it's still going to for some reason it's going to offend some people it's the same smell it's the same presence of god it's the same demeanor the same glow the same difference and some people are going to be bothered by it how many of you experienced that and they come up with very insulting ways. Oh, now you're a Bible thumper. Now you're a Christer. That's a, that's a really offensive term that Madeline Murray O'Hare came up with. That's what, that was her name for Christians. When she was dying in a hospital room, she stationed a couple of her disciples in the hallway because she didn't want any blankety-blank Christers praying for her. Well... That's all I'll say about that, or I'll get in trouble. So there's something about us that signifies the presence of Christ. We want it to be winsome. Some will find it loathsome. Uh, and this, let me, since this is a short message, let me, let me take just a second. I don't know, I'm not telling you you need to read this, but if you are into fiction, and I know not everybody is, some people would rather just read manuals or uh, biography or history, whatever, but if you're into fiction... Uh, there's an author named Ted Decker who writes excellent Christian fiction, and there's a, a, it's called the Circle Trilogy. And I think there's actually four books now, but the original trilogy, I forget. It's like three colors, and I forget which, a white, green, and red, or there's a black in there somewhere, but I don't remember which is the add-on. Interesting, interesting allegory of the Christian life. And there is a, uh, a passage in there. It's, a, it's, a long, it's not just a passage. It's, it's part of the whole story of, uh, of this, uh, this redemption story where you've got a group, a race of people who represent fallen humanity. But in the story, there are these filthy, disgusting, dirty, ugly, stinky people. These are the things that you can only get so close to their encampment before the smell makes you gag. And then you've got the redeemed people, these, these other people who, are, uh, who represent the redeemed, and they're these shining, strong, beautiful, muscular people. And what they find as they, you know, they're enemies. They're living in a state of enmity with one another until their leader decides we need to reach them. We can make them like us. We can redeem them. And so he goes to initiate friendship and then even eventually romance with one of these uh, filthy ones. And, of course, the thing he has to overcome is he cannot stand her smell. Uh, there's just something so repulsive. And, but he finds out in conversation that the people who live in that filthy society look at the shiny ones the exact same way. We can't stand the way you look. We can't stand the way you smell. Now, objectively, one group of people is clean and shiny and smell good. But to people who are in love with their own filth, what should be a perfume becomes a stench. And this is the way we are absolutely going to encounter people in this world 
who will find everything good about Jesus offensive. We can't change that. The only thing we can do in those situations is pray. But we must continue to stay the course. We must continue to bathe ourselves with the word. We can't change the way we smell. We can just pray that God changes their olfactory sensors so that they smell us, perceive us for what we are, right? So, uh, anyway, let's read on here. In chapter 3, beginning in uh, verse 1 here, he says this. Do we again, sorry, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles or commendations to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Gypsy Smith, uh, evangelist, said this, and you've probably heard it. There are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people will never read the first four. There are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people will never read the first four. And Paul is saying here, and again, he has been challenged on his apostolic authority, and he's saying if anybody doubts this, rather than collect letters from people testifying to Paul's uh, apostleship, he'd rather just be able to point to the Corinthians or the Galatians, or any of these other churches that he's founded and invested in. But here he's talking to the Corinthians. He said, you know, this is what I'd rather present as proof of my apostleship. You guys. You are the greatest evidence of what God is using me for. Your living letters. You are my ultimate epistle. You are my, the people that he had invested in and ministered to, led them to salvation, uh, the fullness of the Spirit, walking in the gifts, walking in love. These are Paul's greatest testimony to the rest of the world. And he spends the rest of chapter 3 comparing the glory of the old covenant with the glory of the new covenant. And he includes, ultimately, that there's really no comparison. Uh, I'm not going to read it now, but basically what he says is, imagine... The glory of the Word of God, simply by virtue of the fact that it is the Word of God, was so great that Moses had to wear a veil coming down from the mountain. When he would spend time in the presence of God, you know, we pictured the Ten Commandments like the Charlton Heston scene, like all there was uh, to Moses' whole encounter on the mountain was the lightning bolts coming down and carving this. Uh, And I'm not dissing the movie. It's a great movie. Uh, that there were just ten things that God gave Moses. But God met with Moses for a long time while he recorded basically everything from Genesis forward, right? To, for, during the Pentateuch, uh, up, up through somewhere in the middle of Deuteronomy. And he's writing this stuff down, and he's spending this time with God. And when he would come out of these meetings, his face was glowing. And in order to keep the Israelites... Uh, from being dazzled simply from the residual effects of receiving the Old Testament, the Word of God, from receiving the law. He had to wear this veil. And then uh, Paul says later in chapter 3 that eventually Moses began to wear the veil so that Israel wouldn't see the glory that Moses had on him fading away. And that was the law. What Paul's saying is here, the law could not even impart life. 
it was so glorious that Moses, simply being in the presence of the spoken word of God, was glowing, physically glowing, manifestly glowing. And all the law could do, all the law could do was communicate God's standards to us and ultimately convict. And what was the outcome of that? Death. The law kills. The law had no power to impart life. It revealed things about God to us. It showed us how far we were from God. But ultimately what the law delivered to us was death. And it still had this glory. And so Paul's saying, how much more does the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit, which gives life, how much more glorious is that? It actually, the new covenant, the Spirit of God, actually imparts power to us to live righteously. All the demands that the law placed on us, the law couldn't empower us uh, to fulfill. But the Spirit does. The Spirit empowers us to live righteously. And then he said, at the same time, it says where, and this is in chapter 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. We get so, it's easy to get bound up. Well, if the Spirit of God imparts power to live righteously and I'm not living righteously, then I'm condemned. No, the law condemns. We just need to rest in assurance of the fact that the Spirit does empower us. But it's not our righteousness our inward righteousness that justifies us before God. It's the very fact that we are in Christ and his spirit is in us that qualifies us for his presence, okay? It's liberty. It's freeing. And then in chapter 4, he speaks of the gospel as light, the light of the gospel. Uh, And light not only in the darkness, but light shining in the midst of blind people. That's interesting. He says the the gospel is light, and that but people around us have been blinded by the God of this age. And here I'm going to steal a piece from Ravi Zacharias. This is something I've heard him share a number of times. But he points out that for the Hebrew, the ideal was expressed in terms of light. Right? Jesus said, "You're the light of the world." Okay, the, uh, the psalmist says, Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. For the Greek, the ideal was knowledge. The great philosophers and lovers of knowledge, those who founded the idea of the university, were the ancient Greek philosophers, most notably uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. For the Romans, the ideal was glory the glory of the eternal city, the glory of the Caesars, the triumphal processions we talked about, etc. So for Hebrews, it was light. For Greeks, it was knowledge. Uh, And for Romans, it was glory. Here's Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, ministering in in Greek culture, but as a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire. And look what he writes. In chapter 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light, knowledge, glory. Isn't it awesome how he binds all of these things together, brings in the culture, brings in the the power of the age, and the ancient principle of light all, God binds it all together and infuses everything with that meaning. But then he goes on to write, 
about the fact that this great spiritual light and life is in us, even though we are earthen vessels or jars of clay, as some translations say. He's acknowledging, and we have to as well, that the hard part about this whole enterprise is that we are conducting this spiritual business in bodies that ultimately are still decaying. We who have the assurance of eternal life still have death working in our bodies. And in chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This, is a, this whole chapter, I, you know, from, uh, if you read from verse 7 on through what I just read. It's such a, uh, it's an encouraging passage. But in this, in this, uh, in this part of the book, in this part of the letter, it's also talking about the hardships he has faced. And we've been struck down but not destroyed. We've been, you know, there was a, we used to sing that whole passage. <sighs> Persecuted, not abandoned. He's acknowledging that it's hardship But in most cases, the hardship has to do with the fact that we're carrying this whole business on in bodies, in bodies that feel pain, bodies that get tired, bodies that need sleep, bodies that that hunger, and bodies that are wearing down. This is a tough one. You understand? Uh, As a church and as a a minister, as as a child of God who believes in healing, people say, well, do you really believe it's God's will to heal every time? Yeah, I do. And I'm not going to preach a sermon on that now. I've preached dozens of them. But if you ask me why, the short answer is because Jesus always healed. He never said, nope, not this time. He never said, sorry. Certainly never said, sorry, you don't deserve it. He never said, sorry, this is the mysterious outworking of God's plan for you. Don't question it. Just accept it and be the best you can. Every time somebody came to him for healing, he healed them. Right? Right? But then people who want to fight this on a doctrinal, uh, doctrinal uh, basis, they'll, they'll many times say something like this. That's insane because you, what you're basically saying is you're going to live forever. Now, there is a fringe element of uh, they would probably call themselves word of faith, but I don't like including them in our camp. Uh, but it's, it's something like manifest sons of God or something like that. And they might go by different names who actually do believe that. They actually believe that if they're walking in perfect faith, not only will they never get sick, they'll never get old, they'll never die. That's not what we're talking about. And the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. But show me in the Bible where it says we have to die sick. Now I know it's an ideal that we strive for and then relatively few seem to uh, uh, experience, but we've all heard about it. People who just lie down and say, listen, I'm going home tonight. Great men of God who just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. My, 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 my work here is finished. I'm ready to go home. They sit down in a chair. They say goodbye to their family, close their eyes, and spirit leaves. That's the way to go, right? <laughs> and why not aim for that? 
and say, well, ultimately, if your heart stops, you died of heart disease or something like that. Okay, fine. But there's this promise. With long life, I will satisfy you, show you my salvation. How do you know if it's time? Because there's some people, they're fighting something. They, you know, it's like, and, and, and man, I prayed with people right before they've died. They look, this has been a long battle. Frankly, I'm satisfied with life. There's nothing more I want out of this life. I'm, just, I'm ready just to, to go home. Well, go home then. Don't drag it out. What's wrong with going home? Not a thing. But if you're not satisfied, it's not your time. Fight it. Claim the healing that belongs to you. All right? But he's talking about, uh, well, we'll come back to this in a second. He goes on here in, in uh, chapter 5, along the same vein, saying that even though uh, we're in these bodies that are dying, death is not to be feared, because de- death means that we are finally truly, manifestly with Christ. Here's a fairly famous passage beginning in verse 5 of chapter 5. Now, he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has also given us spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This is a, one of the better scriptures. When people talk about the concept of soul sleep, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, which is the doctrine that simply says when you die, you sleep. And you're unconscious, you're unaware of the passage of time until the general resurrection. And when Jesus comes back, the graves open, uh, and that's when we wake up. Now, and there is some language that sort of alludes to that, but I believe the language is simply referring to our bodies in that case. There's pretty clear evidence that our spirits go to be with Jesus. And and this is one of the clearest statements. To be absent from the body is to what? Rest in the grave until Jesus comes back? No, it's to be present with the Lord. Uh, The other great examples are in uh, Revelation, where before Jesus comes back, before the general uh, general, uh, resurrection, there is conversation going on between dead saints and Jesus Christ. They're in heaven. Now, it may be that we are simply there uh, only spiritually, and then one of the things that we will long for until the general resurrection is our resurrection bodies. And Paul talks about this here, too. He's he's building us a a habitation not made with hands, that we're going to be fully, we're going to be clothed with immortality, not in these mortal, decaying bodies. And it's something we can be excited about. But then he does. So this is great. Let's don't fear death. If the death is the worst thing that can happen to us, and guess what it means? It means we will be manifestly present with the Lord. And this is also, I mean, I'm turning this into a longer sermon by the second, but this is my answer also to people who say, well, look, you know, there's uh, people who want to blur the lines, I guess, between heaven and earth. I've talked, to, I've talked a little bit about before, and I'm not going to name any names, but I've heard this. That, you know, one of the big messages of the Bible is that heaven and earth are the same place. After all, Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He gave us his spirit. The spirit inhabits us. Is God with us right now? All right, so how can it be, if we're home in the body, how are we absent from the Lord? But he'll never leave us or forsake us. Anybody see some tension in those two truths? Well, the fact is, he is. 
He is here. He is not just here. He's with us. He's not just with us. He's in us. Yet, there is another level of reality. Here I go, man. I'm throwing out uh, all these book recommendations. I recommended Ted Decker. Another one I should recommend. Uh, that uh, This phrase that Paul used earlier called weight of glory. Working in us an eternal weight of glory. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory that I would recommend every believer read. It's seven or eight pages long and so, so worth reading. But he also wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which is about a bus trip into heaven. I've talked about it before. And there's some really cool points he, he brings out in this story. It's a story, all right? It's fiction. But he brings out some kind of doctrinal observations on the sly. But one of the cooler things about this is as this guy is walking through uh, essentially what is heaven, one of the characteristics about heaven is that it is all more solid and real than anything on earth. So much so that to walk on the grass hurt his feet because the grass was so hard and solid. Raindrops had to be dodged because they were so hard and solid. And he was made, he was still in his earthly body and was made of such weak, ephemeral stuff. Heaven was just more real. Is the presence of God real? Yes, it is. So what keeps it from being as real as heaven? The fact that we're still carrying around these bodies of flesh that are still carrying around the stain of sin. We've got to be freed from these bodies before we really see the presence of God. And that's what happens when we die. But he also says, uh, you know, being in the presence of Jesus is great, but he also reminds us, it's kind of sobering, beginning in verse 9, I'm in chapter 5 still. Uh, it says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. He talks about the fact that we are going to stand before him in judgment. This is not judgment as in, are you going to heaven or hell? When Paul talks about all of us at the judgments, there are two judgments, and we'll talk about them later. Um, when we get into last day stuff, there's the great white throne judgment and there's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is where you and I will be. Our salvation, our eternal home is secure, but we are going to give an account for what we did while we were in these bodies. And Paul's saying that ought to, probably will, terrify you when you first think about it. So make it your aim to be well-pleasing to him. It's not a matter of are you going to be cast out of his presence into hell. It's a matter of your eternal rewards being based on what we do with the Spirit of God while we're here. And then goes on talking about the difference between the inward man and the outward man. And it's not just the appearance, not just the appearance of our flesh, but worldly success as well means nothing in the face of eternity. Perhaps the most famous passage in 2 Corinthians is in chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, where it says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm going to come back to that for right now. Let me read the rest of this chapter. Now all things are of God 
who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what God the Father offers us through Christ Jesus. Plain and simple, he offers us a new life. He takes on our sin. We take on his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. Reconciliation with God. Uh, Allegedly, Henry David Thoreau sometime in the last weeks of his life. Some people say it was a preacher that came to speak to him on his deathbed. Some accounts say it was an aunt who came to speak a couple weeks before he died. But by all accounts, he was dying. And somebody asked him, have you made your peace with God? And his response was, I wasn't aware we had quarreled. Very clever, very witty. But that's the big misconception. Apart from Christ, we are all in a state of enmity with God. It's our sin that does that. And Christ is the only way to reconcile. We can't make amends on our own. That's why the cross was necessary. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Apart from that confession, apart from that belief, you can't be saved. We remain unreconciled. You have to realize, you have to recognize that the death Jesus died on the cross was your death. It was my death. It was the death every sinner deserved. And the life he displayed when he rose from the dead is the life that he offers to all of us. This is the new creation. When we become a Christian, when we believe, we are not just submitting to a worldview. We are not just submitting ourselves to live a certain way. That stuff comes as a result. What we are doing is receiving a new life. We are exchanging our dead, sinful self for an alive, righteous self by simply being in Christ, this is the new creation. Let me read that again. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If that's not already highlighted in your Bible, highlight it. Print it out. Memorize that. This is a new life. And what do you say before that? After that, he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul's saying, look, here's my whole purpose in everything ultimately comes down to this. I am begging you on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, be reconciled to God. He is the one who reconciled us to himself, and then he's taken that ministry of reconciliation and given it to us. This is our number one job, no matter what we do occupationally. Who we are is ambassadors for Christ. We are representing the kingdom of God, and our mission 
is to bring people out of this far country into our home country to deliver the same message of reconciliation that we have received. It is job number one for every Christian, not just every pastor. Stand up with me. I know most of you are saved, and that means you're an ambassador. And if you need to recommit to that, you need to remember what it is you committed to. There's no getting away from it. You're not, you're not going to resign your Christianity because you don't really want to be an active ambassador, right? But you can't just be saved and not be an ambassador. You are a representative of the kingdom of God. And if you want to recommit to that, reconnect to that power that comes with the accepting that commission. Uh, when I open up the altar here, I invite people to come up and pray with me. Feel free to come up. I'll pray with you. You can kneel at the altar, but, but may, take a moment even if you stay in your chair to just take that a little more seriously. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.